Open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. And I was just told by Kelly Kramer that she's going to volunteer to bring some sausage and biscuits and gravy to the men's breakfast. So guys, my goodness, there's another reason to come to the men's breakfast because that was good and we had it the last time. So uh, thank you so much, Kelly. So um, Genesis chapter 22, the title of the message today is Genesis for Today, the promised one and the promised land. Genesis for today. The Bible says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active. This is no dead letter. Genesis written thousands of years ago is just as relevant right now as the day it was first penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Moses. And so we have a living and active word here. We have relevance in the book of Genesis for today, and there's just been a burden to really capture that. And so in our final message on Genesis, before we turn to Exodus, I wanted to look at Genesis for today, the promised one and the promised land. And and let's read Genesis 22 first, this, this section of scripture where Abraham was told by God to offer up his son, Isaac. And let's read beginning in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and found Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we look through the book of Genesis today. Help us to see the, the relevance of every single word of Scripture for every day of our lives. And God, I pray you would fill us with a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God that would, would run deep and that we would be passionate pursuers of your Word of truth into our everyday lives and that we would know the Word and we would love it and we would cherish it. And Lord, I pray that you would cause all of us to see Jesus Christ in the pages of Genesis this morning, and help us marvel at what you've done for us by sending him to die on the cross so that anybody who repents of their sins and believes in Christ might not perish, but have everlasting life. Open up our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of our series in in the book of Genesis, and we're going to go from Genesis right through to Revelation, and I'm excited about this. We'll have some breaks in between with some some, uh, topical series mixed in, but I'm excited to go from Genesis to Revelation, seeing Christ in all of Scripture. And I was so captured by this story in Genesis 22 that I had to just share this with you, because it was one of those wow moments when I was studying God's Word throughout the series, and I was just like, I got to share this. I can't let this slip by. So it's not just the promise of Christ that's represented in the book of Genesis, but also the presence of Christ, the person of Christ, I believe, is also seen. And I want you to marvel with me on this and follow with me as we look at this language in Genesis chapter 22, because I hope that we all kind of have this wow moment and just sort of this bedazzled moment as we study the scriptures here. I was marveling at Genesis 22 when we read it at Will Harvey's care group last month when Bryce Davis did a wonderful job of leading it. In the discussion we were having about the angel of the Lord referenced here in Genesis 22, we noticed that 
as we were reading 11 and 12, where it says, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Look at verse 12. He said, so the angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. From me. The angel of the Lord said, you've not withheld your only son, not from him, but from me. It's how one word of Scripture can just rock your world. The angel of the Lord used the phrase, from me, speaking as God Himself. And we know from 22.1, after these things, God tested Abraham. We know from 22.1 that it was God who tested Abraham in this way. So in the Old Testament, when the phrase, the angel of the Lord is mentioned, he often shows himself forth in this way. He speaks in a way that reveals himself to be God himself. Other times, there is the phrase in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, of an angel. An angel of the Lord. Which seems to signify one of the created angels that God creates. That are his servants, are his messengers. But quote, the angel of the Lord speaks differently than the other heavenly beings. The angel of the Lord speaks as God Himself because I believe, brothers and sisters, He is God Himself. The pre-incarnate Christ. I believe that this phrase, the angel of the Lord, is a reference when we see it to the glorious pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, he was personally there. This, this is just amazing. He was personally there to stop the sacrifice of Isaac because he himself would later take on flesh and offer up himself as the sacrifice for our sins. He would be the substitute. Isaac didn't need to be. It says in this section, on the mount of the Lord, Jehovah Yireh, the Lord will provide. The Lord provides. Christ will be God's provision that will save His people from their sins. So I, I just marvel at this. He went in person to stop Abraham from killing his son Isaac because he would later offer up the sacrifice of himself. That, that's just awesome. It speaks ultimately. The Lord will provide certainly speaks to God supplying financial provision to His people and everything we need for life and godliness, but it speaks ultimately to the provision of salvation, redemption, deliverance, atonement, propitiation, reconciliation, ransom, justification that God has provided for us in Christ, brothers and sisters. Isn't He wonderful? I want to share just a couple quotes that have uh, been a reference to this. I hope to just bless you as you study this further as well. Michael Habman writes, It seems when the definite article, the, is used, it is specifying a unique being, separate from the other angels. The angel of the Lord speaks as God. He identifies himself with God and exercises the responsibilities of God. And you see all these scripture references here. We'll take a little quick snapshot of that if you want for further study. But we're going to hit this as we go through Genesis. So I'm so pumped to look at the other references of the angel of the Lord and just get so dazzled with you as we roll through the Old Testament. In several of these appearances, those who saw the angel of the Lord feared for their lives because they had, quote, seen the Lord. Therefore, it is clear that in at least some instances, the angel of the Lord is a theophany, or maybe even better said, a, a Christophany, 
but certainly a theophany, an appearance of God in physical form. The appearances of the angel of the Lord, this is awesome, cease after the incarnation of Christ. Angels are mentioned numerous times in the New Testament, but, quote, the angel of the Lord is never mentioned in the New Testament after the birth of Christ. That's just awesome. And this quote here, Christians generally agree that the above passages and many others that mention, quote, the angel of the Lord are appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ before he came in the flesh. I, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're dancing in the fires. The fourth one, Nebuchadnezzar says, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods, shining one. What else do you think? This is an angel of the Lord. This is awesome. The angel is referred to with masculine pronouns. He's identified as God. He performs miracles. Gideon and Manoah, I can't wait to get the judges thought they would die because they saw the angel face to face. The angel accurately foretold future events. His name is, quote, wonderful, quote, uh, referencing Judges 13 and Isaiah 9, and he destroyed 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army in one night, 2 Kings 19. While angels have occasionally performed some of these actions, such as miracles and prophecy, there are clear examples when, quote, the angel of the Lord cannot be viewed as a normal angel. He is occasionally identified as God. Here in Genesis 22 is an example. He accepted worship. This happens in Joshua. This this is awesome. And at least two people who saw him thought they would die for seeing him face to face. These same attributes and activities are clearly attributed to God elsewhere in Scripture. And this is just thrown in there, and I love this. Also, quote, the commander of the army of the Lord Joshua 5.14, who, by the way, has got a sword drawn right before they go into Jericho, is likely the same individual as the angel of the Lord even here in Genesis chapter 22. Joshua saw the commander holding a sword, and he accepted Joshua's worship, something the holy angels refused to do. And the personal word, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's just so compelling and so thankful for those quotes by, and this one was by Tim Chaffee. So, brothers and sisters, I just think this is awesome, digging into God's Word together with you, going through the book of Genesis together. I can't wait to get into Exodus with you, loving the daily devotionals together with you, studying God's Word and our devotional times together as a church. I think things like this are worthy of our devoted meditation and study and marveling and wondering and worship of God. Let's fuel the fire. You can think, oh, okay, so it's the pre-incarnate Christ. What, what does that mean? When Jesus says in the Gospels, before Abraham was, I am, it means that Christ was personally involved. God is personally involved in caring for his people on the earth. It moves me that it's Christ that grabs Abraham, the father's arm, as he's about to strike the son, because it's like Jesus is pleading, no, no, don't you do it, I'm going to do it. It affects me with his sacrifice, his willing sacrifice on the cross to die as a substitute. Here a ram is provided, but for Christ no ram would be provided He needed to do it all, and he did it all, and he finished that work on the cross and said, it is finished, and and it's paid in full. Jesus died, and Jesus rose again, and we are saved, brothers and sisters. Oh, praise him. God is never watching from a distance. He's always intimately acquainted with all of our ways, Psalm 139 says, and he defends and he protects his people. He delivers his people personally through Christ even before Christ takes on flesh and comes and dies on the cross. You could say, well, why was there a need for him to take on flesh if he's able to appear, even in human form, as the angel of the Lord numerous times in the Old Testament? Because Christ needed to take on human flesh. And in addition to being fully God, he also became fully man so that he could die as a man, for men and women on the cross and be our substitute. 
fulfilling the law perfectly as a human so that he could be an acceptable sacrifice to atone for our sins. You look at the plan of God in redeeming and saving sinners. It's just awesome. Let us proclaim Christ and worship him for how glorious and how awesome he is, brothers and sisters. Can we just offer up a clap offering to him for being as awesome as he is to the Lord? I couldn't let that one go. <laughs> I had to tell you. We're going to flow into a few scriptures now and transition into a briefer message, but a message that scans over the work of Genesis as a whole. Seeing Christ in all of scripture in the book of Genesis. Genesis for today, and have some thoughts flowing from this Numerous set of scriptures. So Genesis 1.1. Let's read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Don't even need another verse for the day. That's, that's it. Genesis 3.15. The passage that John preached so wonderfully. Right immediately after man's fall into sin, God's got a promise and he's got an answer. He's got the gospel for it. I will put enmity between you and the woman. God's saying to the servant, to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he, speaking of the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. He will be bruised. But Satan, you're going to be crushed. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and we'll, we'll stop after this. Because Genesis 1 through 11 is an entire build-up. After the fall, we see the way the fall plays out all the way up to the flood in Genesis 8. And then after the flood, we see sin back into the world with Noah even afterwards, even after they're saved. And the, the mankind within three chapters gets all the way to the point of self-sufficiently building a tower of Babel all the way to heaven, seeking to rise to God in self-sufficient strength. And we just see the nature of the fall again and again spreading out to the nations and then the nations getting spread out. But in Genesis 12, it's like it's like Google Earth. Like the microscope zooms in on one family and one man, on Abraham, who is the offspring of the woman. And through his offspring, God promises this. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. So there you see the promised land referenced. Verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, Abram, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in saying in you, Jesus Christ is spoken of. Is he, Jesus Christ, is the offspring of the woman through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so you see here in Genesis 12, the worldwide mission and expansion of the gospel and God's heart for the nations, even as he zeroes in on one man, one chosen man, Abraham. And then Genesis 12 through 50 is about this family and how the offspring of the woman continues forth through this family and God's people are promised again and again the promised one. If you believe in the promised one, you will, he will take you to the promised land. Believe in the promised one and he will take you to the promised land. And that's the main point I want to make today. Um, <laughs> there's so much 
to, to hit here, and I'm just going to be flying by, but we've just been studying Genesis together, so I think we can, get, we can do a flyby. The Gospels in the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, is speaking about Jesus Christ. And the Gospels spoken of in the Old Testament, and it carries on and on, and it, it carries on and on as the, the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, anticipated the promised one who was to come. And they remember Genesis chapter 3 and that promise. And this repeating of this promise seems to be everywhere in Genesis where this Abram through you and your offspring, it, it connects back to Genesis 3 and then it goes forward. You see it multiple times, not just with Abraham, but with Isaac and Jacob and with Joseph and with Judah and Judah's son. Perez, and the line just continues on and on, even as they spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt, which we're getting into in the Exodus. God's people are slaves in a foreign land, but the promised one is the one that they were called to believe in and trust in. And Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, 6 says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You become a child of God through faith. In the promised one, you become a Christian through faith in Christ. The Old Testament saints did, the New Testament saints do as well. God is going to send the promised one, and he's going to deliver us to the promised land. So the promised one and the promised land are the major themes of the entire book of Genesis. And the gospel is the same, Old Testament and New Testament. So I want to look at really three points very quickly by God, for God, and to God. These are kind of in reference to sort of the first order questions of life that deal with origin. How did I get here? Purpose. Why am I here? And finally, where am I going? What's my destiny? Origin, created by God, point one. Creator, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I want to impress upon us, brothers and sisters, that we were crafted, we were formed and made. I want to reference at this time the passage in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7. I think we have this for projection. The Word of God says, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. And here's God saying, the purpose for which we were created. Whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. There's very specific language in God creating us. That he formed us and he made us. He fashioned us. Uh, Psalm 139 says that God knit us together in our mother's womb. How precious of a work that we have been literally handcrafted by God. And this is a very important point, that we were created by God in the image of God. So there's beauty to who we are as human beings. There's great pleasure that God took in forming and making us. So human beings, all human beings, both Christian and non-Christian, are created in the image of God. And in that sense, as, as art forms, we're more like the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo. Each one of us. When we think of the fact that we've been created in the image of God, we're closer to the specificity and beauty of a Sistine Chapel than we are sort of a, a mass production line in a factory where you're also created, but you're sort of mass produced. You're a cookie cutter individual. It's important to note that that's not the way God's word talks about us as human beings. Each of us are created uniquely and distinctly and formed and fashioned and made and knit together uniquely in our own mother's womb. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me, David, exclaims, and we should count it wonderful too. And as we look at every human being on the planet, every person we look at, it, we need to look and just marvel. God, 
This is a man. This is a woman created in your image. And you were created by God. You, this, this ought to encourage you with the tapestry of design. The language of being knit. It ought to give you, brothers and sisters, a, a sense of value. An unbeliever who might be here also, a sense of value and dignity that you've been created in the image of God uniquely from all the other creatures that God has created. Only man was created in his image, and we see that in Genesis chapter 2. So there's dignity, there's beauty, there's value, there's worth in humanity, and that ought to encourage us with the esteem and love that God has for the whole world. It's important to note here, and this is a really important one for our worldview. There's a lot of worldview type teachings in the book of Genesis. And I want to drop this in here. Brothers and sisters, you were created, not evolved. Huge. Huge. This is where Genesis for today. Living an active word of God is for today. It's important to every Christian's worldview. Science and the Bible are friends. And we must never think that true science is a threat to our faith in God. So I want to encourage you, study and love science because you're studying God's world and God's ways and God's processes. And there is no discovery ever made or that will ever be made that will undo one of the words of Holy Scripture. And sadly, there are contrary origin stories espoused by some scientific theory that we must not embrace because it's contrary to the Word of God. If you are ever taught a scientific theory that seems to be a threat to Scripture, fear not, brothers and sisters. And remember that it is only theory. And if it aims to contradict the living and active and perfectly true Word of God, Believe the word over that theory. Because you can be sure that the word is true. And that the theory is just that. Theory. And not fact. Example. Evolution happens on a micro level all the time within a species. And that's clearly revealed by science and personal experience. Darwin demonstrated that in his origin of species with his finches on the Galapagos Islands. All he demonstrated scientifically was variation within one species. That's it. But the theory that was spawned off of that macroevolution or also speciation, the theory that one species evolves into another species, has no real scientific merit. And those instances where transitional forms are touted as proof upon closer examination have proven to be an error. As many, many stories at the National Museum of History indicate how many times have they had to change their displays because things that they thought were fact were in fact later proven even scientifically to be in error. Brothers and sisters, this is because we owe our existence, our origin, to what God says in His Word here in Genesis 1.1. We owe it to God directly. And it's beautiful. You did not arrive here, and this is important for you to understand, you did not arrive here after having evolved from a primordial soup puddle of chemicals 4.5 billion years ago. You did not evolve from a monkey, but you were rather created in the image of God right from the beginning. True science will never contradict that. False science will tell you things like this. That there was no historical Adam. And I want to encourage you to reject all such lies and cling to the Scripture's account. Because God's Word is timeless. It's true. It's ever-relevant. It's inerrant. And the way it was... And all true science will only confirm the way it actually was. 
It's the interpretation of scientific data where science and scientific theory can err. But true science will always lead the true believer into a deeper faith. So I say again, true science is never a threat to true faith. Enjoy your study of science. I studied cell and molecular biology in college. Loved looking under the microscope and seeing God's creation. Look in the microscopes and look deep in the space and telescopes, brothers and sisters. We should be passionate about science, never in fear of it. Like Christian Isaac Newton in church history and see the awesomeness of, awesomeness of God everywhere and write about it and write hymns about it. And worship God as the God of all creation. And be in awe and wonder of Him. Sing worship songs to not just Him as Redeemer, but Him as Creator, even as God is worshipped forever in Revelation chapter 4 around the throne. For not just redeeming men from every tribe and tongue in Revelation 5, but in Revelation 4, by you all things were created. Oh, let's lift up praise and holy worship to God for being the Creator and let us embrace into our own souls that we've been created wonderfully and beautifully in the image of God, and let that fuel your worldview as you look at life. We must, quick aside here, never be arrogant toward those who don't believe or to those who believe differently. It's important to note this as well. A person is saved by trusting in Jesus Christ and not by believing in a specific origin story. This is vital. Someone can believe in evolution, and be a genuine, passionate Christian. If they genuinely believe in Jesus Christ, so let us not make a dividing line of fellowship on what someone's theory of origin is, but brothers and sisters, we must also never personally yield our convictions to the absolute truth of Scripture over any scientific theory espoused, and recognize that understanding that you were created by God in the image of God immediately, fearfully, and wonderfully made by God is vital for the Christian life. It's vital. This understood into the soul makes a real difference. You have special value to God as a human being. You display God uniquely. Even unbelievers do in a special way. And this, this has a bearing on how we should view the lost. We should have a heart for the lost. We should have a heart for people of other nations. We should have a heart for people of other colors and languages and ethnicities and because we all come from the same origin, God, and we all come from the same man, Adam. So there's many ethnicities and there's one race. And so therefore, we as Christians should lead the way in having a sense of love towards all peoples and all nations. And there should never be any prejudice, sinful racial prejudice in the church. All languages and all tongues should be looked forward to to worship when we get to heaven and create a burden in us as a church for racial reconciliation and also have a passion for the sanctity of human life. It should cause us to value everybody we meet, brothers and sisters, and also value ourselves because God values and loves us. Each human being is a masterpiece of God. So let us strive for the goodness of all humanity. And let us most of all work for humanity's greatest need. The need to be reconciled to God through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. There is no greater cause than this. So much more to say, but need to move on. That was, we were created by God. This is point two for God. We were created for God. Again, I want to reference Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory. We were created for God's glory. Created by God and created for God and we were created for His glory. We see man in the garden before the fall. In Genesis 2, husband and wife, Adam and Eve, male and female, in marriage covenant, in the marriage bond, enjoying intimacy with God and pure intimacy with one another in physical harmony. 
They were both naked and unashamed, which speaks to just the beauty of life before the fall. And just the beauty and pleasure of even sexual intimacy within marriage before the fall, and that marriage was created by God as a gift. So let marriage be held in honor by all. This is one of the purposes of man. And when man's called to marriage, we must hold marriage in honor, as Hebrews says, and let sexual intimacy be reserved only in the covenant of heterosexual marriage, we learn in Scripture. We also learn in Genesis 2 that before the fall, the, 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 the wonderful equality of men and women is taught. And let us herald the truth that men and women are equally created in the image of God and let us have a heart that heralds that truth and cherishes that truth and also cherish the beauty of the distinction of roles that God created between men and women. It's never to be viewed as something less than the beautiful design of God right from the beginning, right from the beginning before the fall. We see man created for God to walk with God, even as Enoch walked with God in Genesis chapter 4. We see God, he gave the man the ability in Genesis 2 to choose to love him and obey him in the garden, but man did not obey him. Eve fell into sin and Adam with her and mankind ushered in the fall at that point and we've all been tainted by it. And here, the perspective of a worldview of a fallen world a few thoughts on this and how it can apply every day to our lives. Understanding that we live in a world that's fallen and a fallen world can do a number of things that are good in our lives. I hope these help you practically. I want to practically apply this to our lives. It can fuel compassion as we look out at the world and see the craziness of it. Remember that it's a fallen world. Don't become self-righteous but rather let it fuel your compassion and your understanding as you see the craziness of the world. Understanding that the world's fallen can give you sanity as you read the news. It can help you understand what's really happening and where it's all going and where it's all heading. It can help you to be patient. It can help you to be humble. It can help you as you see injustices in the world to source it back and recognize that that began at the fall. Understanding the fall can help you to be protected from becoming cynical as you look at the world, but rather empathetic and more loving, passionate to work for the world's good and work for the church's good and to give your life over to living for God's glory and doing all we can to help preach the gospel even as God is undoing the effects of the fall even now and will once he comes back undo everything of this fallen world. But this fallen world is broken and I'm, we need to take this perspective of I'm not going to seek my happiness here. It's fallen. A lot of even professing believers live as if heaven is here on earth. This is not heaven. We're going to heaven. And for now, we're called to live not for ourselves, but for God. We're called not to try to build a kingdom here and create heaven here on earth for our own personal happiness and enjoyment. It was never about that. Understanding the fallen world will break that spell and help us say, I'm I'm a pilgrim here. I'm going to be a wilderness wanderer like the rest of God's people until we get to the promised land. It'll protect you from settling. It'll protect you from worldliness. It'll give you focus and perspective to remember that, as Paul Tripp said, this is a broken down house. This is a fallen world. And it'll also give you an explanation of all the sickness and poverty and natural disasters and wickedness and sufferings like mental illness and even death. Death came into the world because of sin. The wages of sin is death. Understanding that the world is fallen can protect you against anger toward God with the sufferings you experience in this world. Because suffering and death are a result of man's fall. 
And even though God is sovereign over the fall, He would have us remember that it's man's rebellion against Him. That's the reason why the world is so torn up and twisted and broken like it is. So it can help you have hope because as surely as man is responsible for the fall, and here's where the worldview of the gospel comes in, God did something about the fall. And he did something immediately after it happened, like we read in Genesis 3. The offspring of the woman, God promised, will crush the head of the serpent, and he will undo all the effects of the fall. He'll bring this fallen world and this fallen universe completely and utterly to an end when Christ returns and comes in glory and in judgment. And then it's going to be the new heavens, the new earth, the new literal land, heaven that we will enjoy forever with glorified, resurrected new bodies, even as Christ was raised as a firstborn amongst many brothers, we also, the dead in Christ, will be raised also to enjoy the Lord forever in heaven. It can give you focus to understand the fall and understand that God's done something about it. It'll fuel you with purpose to join into what God's doing, which is having the gospel proclaimed to the nations so that people will believe in Christ and that they also will be able to enjoy the promised land that's been won because of the promised one. It's all possible because of Jesus. And so understand the fall and it will help you with your understanding of the world today as you look at the news every single day and as you see everything. It'll cause you to be filled with compassion and Christian love instead of sinful judgment, self-righteousness, and arrogance. And brothers and sisters, this world needs to see Christians who are different. Christians who are humble. Christians who preach Christ and not preach arrogant opinions about all kinds of things that ultimately do not matter. We need to be people of the book and people of the precious Christ who remind lost sinners and don't judge them because they're fallen we would not want to look on them and have compassion and say, listen, I was a sinner once too, lost in the fall, but God did something. He rescued me and I have good news for you, friend. Let us preach the gospel to the lost and not stand from a distance and pot shot them and stand in self-righteous judgment over them. Let us learn from the book of Genesis the way this broken world is and be a part of the solution to the problem even as Christ has given us the solution of himself. Amen. And finally, point three, living for God. This will be brief. This is our purpose. We talked about origins and, and, and how we are here. We talked about purpose that we're created for his glory and talked about some ways in which our worldview can be shaped and we can live in this fallen world. And finally, we're going to look at living for God, the purpose for which we were created. May we do all we can do to trust the Lord and obey Him, even as God's people did in Genesis. May we trust in Him at all times, even as Abraham believed God and it was credited to Him as righteousness. May we obey Him. May we love His law and His ways. May we, brothers and sisters, like Joseph, flee from sexual temptation and hold marriage as he did as a single man in honor as he did. And he fought not only for his future marriage covenant, but also he fought for the present marriage covenant of Potiphar and Potiphar's wife by fleeing out of Potiphar's house when Potiphar's wife sought to tempt him. Let us hold marriage covenants of everyone around us as well as our own in serious commitment let us be an example to this world. And may we flee, as Joseph did, from not just that temptation, but all temptation and sin. Even if God calls us to suffer for it as He did Joseph. And let us pursue purity of heart in the fear of God. May we, like Joseph in Genesis 50, say over every hurt and pain committed against us that man meant it for evil. But as we looked at last week, God meant it for good. And one more thought on the final point, which is 
going to Him. We looked at by Him and for Him. Let's look at to Him. The end of all this story finds us back in the immediate presence of the One who made us. God, we read in Genesis 1-1, formed us, created us. And it's such a beautiful story that at the end of our story, to be absent from the body, Scripture says, is to be immediately present with the Lord. We were created by Him. We're called to live for Him. And the good news, friends, is we're, we who believe in Christ are going to Him. We're all going to stand before Him alone and give an account. And we know from Genesis that God is a God of justice against sin. A God who punishes sin and brought the judgment of the flood and brought the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah for its wickedness. God was willing to spare the whole city of Sodom and Gomorrah if there were only ten righteous people as Abraham appealed to him. But there were not. And we must tremble at God and worship Him for His salvation and also for His judgments. For being the holy God who also punishes sin as well as saves sinners. Let us who have not yet repented of our sins and trusted in Him, like Josh exhorted us so well during worship, may we turn to Him now in repentance and in faith. For He is the God who promised that one day the offspring of the woman would come and crush the head of Satan. And Jesus has come born of the Virgin Mary, born of the woman, and He died on the cross crushing Satan's head to save us from our sins, even though He was bruised Himself and crushed for our iniquities. As Isaiah so wonderfully says, the punishment that brought us peace was upon Jesus on the cross. And by His wounds we are healed. And so the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ in incarnate form took hold of Abraham's hand and stayed his hand because Jesus would willingly offer up his own life to be crushed by his Father so that we who believe in the promised one, Jesus Christ, here this morning might go to the promised land. Just as the Israelites went to the promised land of old, having trusted in the promised one, who was to come. Even as God delivered Israel safe into the promised land of Canaan, God is also likewise Christ Community Church. My dear brothers and sisters, God is going to likewise deliver us safe into the promised land of heaven. And don't you ever doubt it. He's got you. He began this good work in you. He's going to bring it to completion. And He is a God, like Josh said earlier, who is a God of grace. And He will forgive the vilest sinner in here. Because in my mind, you're looking at Him. God has forgiven me. He will forgive you and receive you. If you trust in the promised one, Jesus Christ, you will go to the promised land called heaven. If I can have the worship band return, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank You so much for the book of Genesis. Thank You for its relevance. God, I pray that we would be people of the book who with humility and compassion stand upon the word of truth. God, I pray that we would always remember that we've been created by You and that we were created for Your glory and that we are also going to You in the end, we cannot wait to get to the promised land. But it's not even the promised land that we're most looking forward to, Jesus. We're excited to go to heaven. But heaven wouldn't be heaven, Jesus, if you weren't in there. And we cannot wait to see you face to face. We are going to you, almighty God. And we're going to see you as you really are. And that's going to be the glory of heaven. And we cannot wait. Lord, Strengthen the faith of all of us here this morning. Strengthen our worldviews. Protect us and help us to be people of the book who 
stand upon your word in these changing times and who see the Bible as ever relevant and that we teach the Bible to our children and our grandchildren and to a generation yet unborn so they would stand upon your truth in the day of trial and in the day of persecution. Protect and guide us, your people, in these wilderness wanderings and help remind us that like the Israelites, we're going to get there. We're going to make it all because of your sustaining grace and your protection because you began this work and you're going to carry it on to completion. You are a faithful God and we love you and we worship you and we praise you. And now we want to worship you in closing. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, church, let's stand and worship our wonderful risen Savior. He's worthy, amen. Thank you, God, that is by your grace that we can stand here this morning because of your son that you laid out that plan from the foundation of the world, God. You laid out that plan. You had it ready so when we fell, it was in place. And you've been enacting that plan through all of human history, God. Leading up to the day that you would send your son come and die for us as sinners. There's so much time there waiting for you to come and die for us as sinners. And you came and we are now able to stand here redeemed before you. Thank you, God. But now we're waiting again. We're waiting for you to come back. Take us home where we belong. And I pray, God, this morning that we would not lose sight of that. You your, our eternity with you would just be eminent in our lives, that our gaze would be on you and on heaven, so that as we go throughout the day-to-day, as we go through just the grind of life, that our heads would be lifted upwards to you, and that we would not lose our way, but that we would help lift one another's heads upwards to you. In Jesus' name I pray.